I'm John, and this is D-O-L-W-2, episode 22, The Right of Sodomy. And I'll be reading from The Right of Sodomy, Homosexuality in the Roman Catholic Church, by Randy Ingle, volume 4, pages 954 to 961. This podcast isn't my personal venting forum, ranting venue, or self-therapy session, but for the purpose of ministering to all of you in my audience, and so I will try to do that better and more gently and lovingly from now on, and also more slowly, so as to not rattle off like a machine gun at you, and enable you to understand me better, as my colleagues and friends in the DOLW podcast, Mike and Teresa, have suggested to me that I should do. Whether I will always succeed in that is another story and remains to be seen. You be the judges of that, and I'm sure that they will let me know too, if I don't sometimes. So, now, to speak just to you younger homosexuals especially, but also to older homosexuals and pederasts in the church, as lovingly and gently and slowly as I'm able to do, Jesus invites all of you to come to me, all you who labor and are burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and humble of heart, and you will find rest for yourselves. For my yoke is easy and my burden light. Matthew 11:28 to 30 And said in reply to the Pharisees and their scribes, who complained to his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Those who are healthy do not need a physician, but the sick do. I have not come to call the righteous to repentance, but sinners. Luke 5.30-32 And said in the parable of the two sons, What is your opinion? A man had two sons. He came to the first and said, Son, Go out and work in the vineyard today. He said in reply, I will not. But afterwards he changed his mind and went. The man came to the other son and gave the same order. He said in reply, Yes, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did his father's will? The crowd answered, The first. And Jesus said to them, Amen, I say to you, tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God before you. Matthew twenty-one twenty-eight to 31 But none of us who are coming with our burdens to Jesus for, the, for rest get to also hang on to all of our old sinful ways and practices and continue doing them because there is no sense or point in our coming to Jesus if we are going to keep right on doing that and following Jesus in quotes well actually to keep following the world at the same time and trying to have our cake and eat it too and have it both ways. Doesn't that sound reasonable and logical even to you in the homosexual community inside the church and outside of it as lovingly, gently and fairly as I'm able to put it to you. If you are just going to decide right and wrong for yourselves and not care what the church says about right and wrong and morality and go right on doing whatever you want to do even in the church why bother with the church at all 
just stay out in the world and keep doing all that you want to do and are able to do to your heart's content and stop trying to have it both ways. We come to Jesus in the church in order to have something different than we have in the world and reform and change our lives. But that won't be possible if there are all of the same sins going on in the church as are going on in the world. And the church is really no different than the rest of the world. That is why Catholic church attendance in Europe is so low, because the Europeans look at all of the things that are going on in the church, the financial corruption, the sex abuse scandals, the rotten and mediocre and incompetent men who are being made priests, bishops, and cardinals in the church, and at their own priests and bishops, and say, why should we bother with or waste any more time on the church when you guys are as bad as, if not far worse than we are? That is why the mafiosi believe that there is no inconsistency between their criminal activities and their being good Catholics, since they look at all of the corruption and perversion going on in the church and say, we fit right in here and continue with their criminal practices while confessing to have the Catholic faith. That is why there is so much cynicism against and rejection of Catholicism in the world. And people are turning away from the Catholic Church and going into fundamentalist Protestant denominations and reading the tracts of Jack Chick and listening to and believing him and his ilk about the Catholic Church and calling it the great harlot of Babylon or becoming Satanists and joining the Church of Satan, or becoming atheists or otherwise abandoning the Church in droves and hordes, like lemmings following each other off a cliff, or rats abandoning a sinking ship. No doubt I have drifted into ranting and rattling on and ungeneralness again, but I'm doing the best that I can with this. Do you and the homosexual community in or outside of the church really believe that it is fair and consistent with people in the church for heterosexuals to have to abstain from adultery, fornication, premarital sex, masturbation, and other sexual sins and be wrong that they don't, but homosexuals don't have to abstain from anything that they want to do and aren't wrong no matter what they do according to themselves anyway and it is actually wrong according to them to ever call them wrong and a defamation against them and violation of their civil rights because that sounds like a double standard to me why isn't it called hate speech to call heterosexual sins sins but only hate speech to call homosexuals sins sins that is more double standard even assuming that homosexuality is entirely natural according to corrupted nature and all of our corrupt natures, are we called to go to right on being natural and living as we see fit, or are we called to rise above our purely natural state with God's help and ascend to a higher plane of earthly life and eventually life in heaven? If natural living is all that we should care about or aspire to, Racism also comes naturally to some people, black, white, and every other color. And racial discrimination is people doing what is right in their own eyes 
as are vandalism, rape, bestiality, serial killing, orgies, prostitution, child pornography, the white sex slave trade, and every sick thing that you and I or anyone else, anyone else can think of. There is no way to be polite and nice about this because these aren't nice and polite subjects but very u- ugly subjects. So if homosexuality should be in the church and accepted just because it is natural, then all of these other things should be in the church and accepted for the same reason. And if you homosexuals get to have your way on everything and nobody can oppose you without violating your civil rights and being homophobic bigots, end quote, how can that not also open the door to pederasts, child pornographers, animal sexual lovers, and everybody else who following your lead wants want their rights too and to be accepted in the church. And then the Catholic Church really would be the great harlot of Babylon and Sodom and Gomorrah, and not just in the anti-Catholic minds of Jack Chick and his ilk. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways be mindful of him, and he will make straight your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. This will mean health for your flesh and vigor for your bones. Proverbs 3, 5-8. And there is a way which seemeth right unto a man, and yet he will be punished if he follows it. For his perverted conscience may arise from his desertion of God. Or, there is a way with, which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Proverbs 14.12 And, all we as sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53.6 But if everyone's going their own way, and doing what is right in their own eyes, and ignoring and disobeying what God and the church have to say about anything is what we should all actually be doing, then none of those verses above matter anymore or mean anything at all. Jesus didn't say to the woman caught in adultery after he had dispelled the crowd ready to stone her by saying, Let him who is without sin among you cast the first stone, Go on sinning, but go and sin no more. John 8, 1 to 11. He says to all of us who are sinning, go and sin no more, and says to the Russians who are persecuting and beating up and killing homosexuals, and to all other people who are doing those things to homosexuals, what he said to the crowd that was ready to stone that adulterous woman that day. Let him who is without sin among you cast the first stone. (sighs) Because you can't fight a sin with a sin, and persecuting, beating up, and killing homosexuals or anyone is a sin. Man is biologically an animal, as Satanism says, but if he were only just another animal, the same as the rest. He would be living exactly the same as they do and defecating in fields or urinating on fire hydrants or cannibalizing those of our own kind as goldfish and black widow spiders do.
and he would have no culture or art or music or civilization or intelligence whatsoever. If we can have all of these, all of these things which raise us above the level of animals without all of it being just superficiality and politeness and pretentiousness, as Satanists believe, then we can also have morality and right and wrong to further raise us above the level of the animals without any of that being superficial, merely polite, or pretentious either. Those who reduce man to just an animal for their own pleasure also reduce him to just an animal for others to persecute, torture, beat up, and kill people. The Russians toward homosexuals, the Nazis toward Jews, Klansmen toward black people, etc., because you can't have it both ways and have to take the bad along with the good. We must reform the Catholic Church and make it a more robust church, as my colleague and friend Teresa says, to end this name-calling and disrespect of the church as the great harlot of Babylon, except among die-hard bigots as much as possible. If I still haven't succeeded in being loving and gentle enough to homosexuals or slowing down my speech enough due to my enthusiasm about it, I can only try better next time on both and offer my explanation on the former now. I don't want to be too harsh or too gentle so as to not get through to people either, but of course probably won't succeed as well in that balance as Teresa or Mike does. The most loving man who ever lived, Jesus Christ, was harsh and apparently unloving in quotes toward some people and called them whited sepulchres and a brood of vipers and asked them, how shall you escape damnation? and told them, you are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father you will do. And you strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. You cross land and sea to make one disciple, and when you have made him, you make him twice the son of hell as yourselves. And I'm not even interested in trying to love some people better than he did, which I couldn't do anyway, but I'll do the best that I can. Jesus also said about those who nailed him to the cross and were gathered round to watch him die and mock him, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And who are the only people who don't know what they are doing? The stupid and insane. Go from the presence of a foolish man when you do not perceive in him the lips of knowledge. Proverbs 14:7. Translation, don't waste your time talking with an idiot. Jesus also preferred, also referred in a parable to foolish maidens who had to go out to get oil for their lamps and so missed the arrival of the bridegroom and were locked out when they came back from the wedding chamber, meaning those who aren't prepared for Jesus' coming. Matthew 25, 1-13. So some harshness and actually tough love and calling some people stupid is evidenced and recommended even in the Bible and teachings of Jesus to try to provoke them into smartening up. And now my reading from The Rite of Sodomy, Homosexuality in the Roman Catholic Church by Randy Engel, Volume 4, pages 
954-961. Torres denied Brady's assertion that the province of St. Albert the Great actively recruits known homosexuals or that the Dominicans and the church condone Bykowski's past life. Perhaps the most interesting aspect of the Taurus letter is what was left unsaid. For Taurus did not acknowledge the existing ban on the admission of homosexual men to the priesthood, that is, the 1961 Vatican instruction religio sorum institutio, which has already been discussed in depth in chapter 13. The instruction was issued by the very same congregation Taurus now serves. The document clearly states that homosexuals and pederasts be excluded from religious vows and ordination. It, is, it specifically mentions the problem of the community life and priestly ministry, which would constitute a grave danger or temptation for these people, i.e. homosexuals and pederasts. The fact that Taurus did not cite the 1961 Vatican instruction in his letter has but one indication that the Holy See thus far is unwilling to even acknowledge the document's existence, much less enforce its rulings. The Society of St. John Exploiting Traditionalist Orders The use of the traditionalist of the, the use of the traditional liturgy is a great good indeed, but it is no good at all to virtue or to the salvation of one's soul, if having it means turning away from the revolting systematic abuse of a spiritual office for sexual needs, sexual ends. The Society of St. John is up to its eye teeth in that abuse, and as such is mounting a direct assault on the priesthood of God itself. No genuine traditionalist would say, we need the traditional mass, don't anger the bishop, so what if some boys get abused so long as long as it is not my son? Wherever, wherever gross negligence lies in this regard, it must be brought to justice. The Church of Christ, namely the Holy Catholic Church, and the traditional movement will be better for it. Speculum institutiae. Ora Pro Nobis, Reverend Richard A. Munkelt, Ph.D. On March 21, 2002, a million-dollar civil sexual abuse lawsuit was filed in U.S. District Court for the Middle District of Pennsylvania, naming as defendants the Society of St. John based in Shahola, Pennsylvania, two of its founding members, Father Carlos Roberto Oratigoiti and Father Eric Enzi, the Diocese of Scranton, Bishop James C. Timlin, the priestly fraternity of St. Peter headquartered in Elmhurst, Lackawanna County, Pennsylvania, and St. Gregory's Academy, also located in Elmhurst. Father Oratigoiti, the founder of the Society of St. John, SSJ, and Father Enzi, Chancellor for the SSJ, are accused of the sexual molestation of plaintiff John Doe. 
and she is accused of coercing John Doe into homosexual acts, including sodomy. While Doe was a minor and a student at St. Gregory's, Uritagoriti is charged with inappropriate homosexual contact towards the plaintiff when Doe was staying on the Shibola property and Doe was no longer a minor. Both SSJ priests were were incarnated into the Diocese of Scranton by Bishop Timlin. They acted as chaplains, part-time teachers, and spiritual advisors at St. Gregory's, an all-male Catholic boarding high school operated by the priestly fraternity of St. Peter. The lawsuit charges Bishop Timlin, the FSSP, and St. Gregory's Academy with gross negligence in failing to act on information known to him concerning the predatory homosexual background of Oratagoiti and Ensi and failure to protect the plaintiff, a minor from the two clerical sexual predators whose positions at the academy were arranged by the FSSP with the approval of the, the diocesan ordinary, Bishop Timlin. Charges against the defendants include assault and battery, negligence, intentional and negligent infliction of emotional distress, invasion of privacy, and breach of duty. The plaintiff and his parents, Jane Doe and John Doe Sr., who reside in North Carolina, are seeking in excess of $75,000 compensatory damages and $1 million as punitive damages. A jury trial has been demanded. This case study on the Society of St. John demonstrates how rapidly the vice of homosexuality can spread, even in a traditionalist environment like that of St. Gregory's Academy. The SSJ and the City of God. Father Carlos Urtigoiti, the founder and acknowledged leader of the Society of St. John, claims that the vision for the Society and the City of God came to him when he was teaching at St. Thomas Aquinas Seminary in Winona, operated by the Society of St. Pius X, SSPX. In May 1997, the SSPX ordained priest was expelled from the Monona Seminary ostensibly because he wanted to found a new religious order. After drifting from one diocese to another, the charismatic Father Uritagoiti, Father Enzi, and a handful of seminarians from St. Thomas were taken in by Bishop James Timlin of the Scranton Diocese and the Society of St. John, Societas Sancta Ionis, was born. On May 24, 1998, Bishop Timlin, with the blessing of Rome, gave his canonical approval to the new society. Six months later, he ordained two new priests to the SSJ, Father Bashi Sarwe and Father Dominic Carey. In September 1999, the SSJ purchased 1,025 acres of land in Shehola Pike County in the Pocono Mountains for $2.9 million to construct a self-contained Catholic city based on the medieval model 
whereby its inhabitants would have a common life and common faith. When completed, the Sussex Day community was to have included cradle-to-grave Catholic educational and formative facilities par excellence. Toward this end, the SSJ asked Donald, Dr. Ronald MacArthur, the founder of St. Thomas Aquinas College in California, to help the SSJ found a similar Catholic liberal arts college on the Shahola property. Dr. MacArthur asked Dr. Jeffrey Bond to assist him with the College of St. Justin Martyr project. MacArthur later withdrew his support for the project after deciding that the concept of God's city as envisioned by the SSJ was not feasible. Acting on the belief that Bishop Timlin was wholeheartedly committed to the project, Dr. Bond took MacArthur's place. He initiated a program to raise money for the St. Justin Martyrs College House of Studies. The canonical structure of the SSJ. The Society of St. John is not a religious order in the traditional sense of the word. It is canonically known as a public association of the faithful, a loose-knit association of diocesan priests with permission to live together according to a rule of life and to carry out a certain apostolic mission. In the case of the SSJ, it is the Bishop of Scranton to whom its priests and religious have promised their respect and obedience. The ordinary of the Diocese of Scranton also possesses the power to, to suppress the SSJ at any time. The official website of the Society of St. John describes the Institute as an association of priests, clerics, religious, and laity working under the leadership of the Pope and bishops of the Church to revive holiness of life and Catholic civilization in the third millennium. The following information on the Society of St. John, its special charism, apostolic mission structure and programs was taken from its founding document. The SSJ community consists of three groups. There is a clerical community living permanently together, a life of worship, study, and apostolate by which the society hopes to rediscover the full meaning of each minor and major order. Within the community, there is also a religious brotherhood of men seeking to become a lay religious institute of diocesan right and who consecrate themselves to God by means of the vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. Finally, there is a lay following of Catholic men and women dedicated to the worship of God and willing to place themselves and their assets at the disposal and direction of the SSJ and its elite clerical leadership. The charism of the SSJ is said to be fourfold. The solemn use of the traditional Roman Rite liturgy, the renewal of priestly life, education, and the formation of small cities with a true Catholic culture. The founders of SSJ, we are told, leaned heavily on institutes of common life without vows as a model and adopted the basic structures and regulations provided by law, although with the adaptations required by their specific goals 
and the unique charisma of the Society of St. John. They adopted the love for the liturgy and clerical excellence in education from the Order of St. Jerome, the Confederated Priory System from the Benedictine Order, the idea of a series of autonomous associations working in a common working in common under one supreme moderator as conceived by St. Martin, Bishop of Tours, and some of the canons of the rule of St. Augustine related to clerics living in common and helping each other in their fulfillment of their duty of state. The founding document states that the priests of the SSJ are consecrated to the Sacred Heart of Jesus, the Immaculate Heart of Mary, and to St. John the Evangelist in consideration of his fidelity and presence at the sacrifice of the cross, where he associated himself with those blessed hearts and the fullness of his prophetic spirit regarding the end times. Restoration is a key word in the espoused mission of the society, including restoration of the sacred liturgy, of the spiritual life, of Catholic wisdom and education, Catholic leadership, communal life, the ascetical nonwithstanding. However, the SSJ pledges to be open to the need for a genuine and fruitful adjournamento. In a section devoted to the state of the Catholic Church in modern society and the crisis of modern man, the SSJ claims it is forming a new generation of priests who will help them resolve the current crisis in the church and in society. The city on the hill we hope to build is neither to hide from the world nor to pharisaically condemn it, but rather to witness to it the truths of the faith, the possibility of living an integral corporate Christian life in today's world, a light to shine, not to be covered under a bushel, the founders explain. The SSJ invites people interested in living in God's city to contact the society and make a donation to building the new foundation for Catholic culture in Shehola and then elsewhere. The only thing wrong with this idyllic picture is that the whole thing is one gigantic fraud from beginning to end. The SSJ has one former SSJ priest correctly described it. The SSJ is, as one former SSJ priest correctly described, a homosexual cult and their accomplices, and there ain't no city of God going up in the Pocono Mountains. The Corruption of St. Gregory's Academy St. Gregory's Academy, the flagship of the priestly fraternity of St. Peter, is an all-boys high school operated by the priestly fraternity in the Diocese of Scranton. The promotional literature for the school states that it is dedicated to Christian education along the lines set down by Pope Pius XI in his December 31, 1929 encyclical, Divini Ilios Magistri. At St. Gregory's, our entire aim is the formation of Catholic gentlemen. We offer a literal arts education following the perennial wisdom of Western civilization. The academy forms young men who are strong in faith, 
hope, and charity, and who manifest in their lives the moral and intellectual virtues, including prudence, wisdom, and understanding. Students are given full instruction in the doctrines of moral and moral teachings of the Church, stressing orthodoxy and obedience to the magisterium. The corner of life at St. Gregory's is Catholic prayer, the heart of which is the holy sacrifice of the Mass, offered daily in the traditional Latin rite by priests of the fraternity of St. Peter, with the permission of the Bishop of Scranton. This, the upscale campus is located on 190 acres of beautiful mountain terrain in eastern Pennsylvania, near the FSSP's North American District Headquarters in Elmhurst. Although St. Gregory's, as a matter of policy, does not accept boys with a history of serious academic or disciplinary problems, the educational and moral tenor of the school took a nosedive when the SSJ priests arrived at the academy. In the fall of 1997, Father Arnold de Verrier, the Supreme the District Superior of the FSSP, with the blessing of Bishop Timlin, permitted the SSJ priest to take up a temporary residence in an empty wing of the academy until they found a new home. The following academic year, the servants minor of St. Francis also joined the SSJ in the guest wing of the academy. When the school opened for its 1998 to 1999 term, Father de Villiers asked the SSJ priests to act as chaplains for the academy as the priestly fraternity of St. Peter was experiencing a shortage of priests. No security check was run on the SSJ priests by either the FSSP or the Scranton Diocese. The duties of the SSJ included celebrating Mass, hearing confessions, teaching religion classes, and giving spiritual direction to the boys of St. Gregory's. For all practical purposes, within a year after their arrival at the academy, the SSJ priests were running the facility. Members of the SSJ also took students from the school on off-campus outings and trips. After the society purchased the Shahola property, it invited St. Gregory students and graduates to visit, camp, and party at the new SSJ facilities. By permitting the SSJ to take over the spiritual formation of its students, the FSSP, in effect, gave the clerical perverts of SSJ not only access to the physical bodies of the young men, but access to their souls as well, which include, which gives an added dimension of the demonic to their criminal enterprise at St. Gregory's. The systematic grooming of the boys of St. Gregory's began with the instruction, introduction of alcohol and tobacco designed to lower the sexual ambitions and moral resistance of potential victims. In sworn testimony given by Mr. Jude Hunts, the head dorm father at the academy. There was one incident in March 1998 
in which he said he observed three students returning from the SSJ's residence at St. Gregory's in a state of heavy intoxication. Hunt Hunt said that the police were called in and SSJ officials were given a warning against serving liquor to minors. In court affidavits in connection with the John Doe case, Mr. Paul Hornack, a teacher at St. Gregory's, and Mr. Jerry Zienta, a dorm father, confirmed Hunt's charge. However, Father Paul Carr, the FSSP chaplain at the academy, disputes Hunt's story. Father Carr contends that the only time the police were called was to see if it was all right for parents to give alcohol to their own minor children. In an addendum to his affidavit, Hunt said that shortly after the arrival of the SSJ priests at St. Gregory's, they began inviting boys over to their quarters for movies and spiritual direction. This practice led to curfew problems for the dorm fathers, as the boys would sometimes return to their dorms at a very late hour. After Mr. Alan Hicks, headmaster of the academy, bent the rules to permit the boys receiving spiritual direction from the SSJ priests to return at a reasonable hour, term undefined, the dorm fathers developed a new system whereby one dorm father checked the boys at night and the other in the morning. The fact that the SSJ priests kept the students up late led to other problems for the dorm fathers. The boys were hard to get up the next morning, were often late for chapel, and were lethargic in classes during the day. Even after Hicks informed Father Ordegordi that these nocturnal visits were causing problems, the practice of late-night spiritual counseling and giving boys alcohol and tobacco continued. There were also reports that the, that students were purchasing marijuana off campus and smoking with their schoolmates at the academy. The grooming of the boys as of St. Gregory's. One of the SSJ priests were ensconced at St. Gregory's. Reports of homosexual acting out and other bizarre sexual behavior by the students began to find their way to academy staff and officials. One senior prefect at St. Gregory's was reported to have made a practice of freaking out lower classmen by jumping into their beds at night naked. There were incidents of young boys imitating fellatio in the boys' dorm facilities. Rumors that Father Ortegorti was sleeping with some students started to circulate on campus. In February 1999, Paul Harnack, a teacher at St. Gregory's, took a group of students on a winter camping expedition along the Appalachian Trail at the Pennsylvania-New Jersey border. For Father Ordegordi volunteered to go along as a spiritual director, in quotes. During the trip, Hornack learned that the priest had supplied the boys in his tent with cigars and wine, and the two of the boys bragged that they had shared Ordegordi's sleeping bag. When confronted with the charge, 
that he gave minors alcohol and tobacco and that he slept with boys in his sleeping bag, the priest defended his actions as a way of fostering good con- good camaraderie. In his affidavit to, for the John Doe case, Hornack stated that Father Ortegoide appeared to consider sleeping with boys to be perfectly natural, and he evidently had succeeded in convincing the two boys there was nothing wrong with it. Hornack noted that during the 1998-1999 school year, I often heard snatches of conversation between the boys that left me in no doubt that drinking, smoking, and bed-sharing were standard occurrences. He said he complained openly to anyone who would listen, but nobody at St. Gregory's seemed to care. In the spring of 1999, Hornack gave notice that he would not be returning to St. Gregory's in the fall. In his exit interview with Father de Villiers, Hornack told de Villiers that he strongly believed that the Society of St. John had engaged St. Gregory's boys in near-homosexual activity throughout the term of their stay at the school. The nonplus de Villiers told Hornack that the SSJ would change its ways when it left the school and had to defend for itself. He also said that he believed that some of the techniques the society employed to win the favor of boys were perhaps intended to make them receptive to God's word. Hornack said he thought de Villiers' statements preposterous. De Villiers did not inform Hornack that he was not the first to complain about the unsavory behavior of SSJ priests. The Franciscan friars, the Franciscan fathers, who shared the same wing of the building with the SSJ priests, had also expressed their concern about the dangerous influence of Father Rodigordi and his priests over St. Gregory's boys to de Villiers. They told him that Father Daniel Fullerton, an SSJ priest, told the students that swimming trunks were optional when they swam on the society's Shahola property. The friars also said they witnessed upperclassmen exhibiting violent behavior in the form of hazing toward younger students, which they believed Father Ordegoiti encouraged as a means of giving the upperclassmen a stake in running the school. One of the Franciscan brothers, who was asked by Headmaster Hicks to chaperone a trip to New York City, sponsored by Father Ortegoiti, reported that on the way the priest trip, the priest stopped to buy cigarettes for the boys and wined and dined the students during their stay in Manhattan. The friars appeared to be fully aware of the homosexual activity of the SSJ at the academy. They reported to de Villiers that they often saw boys in the SSJ's quarters past curfew and some in their bedclothes in the SSJ's bathroom in the early morning. On one occasion, they discovered a student alone in a room smoking and drinking with Father Ortegoiti after midnight. They also reported that for a time, Father Ortegoiti set up his bedroom in the bathroom. Further testimony to support Hornack's charge that the SSJ was turning St. Gregory's into a pederastic haven was provided by Brother Alexis 
Bunyoro, who stayed with the Franciscan brothers in the SSJ wing of the academy for a weekend in February 1999. Brother Bunyoro had acquired knowledge of homosexual behavior as a result of his work with a problem with a pro-life group in Boston that conducted a street ministry in the homosexual sections of the city. He stated that during his stay at St. Gregory's, he saw students exhibiting nonverbal, nonverbal homosexual gestures and behaviors that were inconsistent with normal boyhood affections. Affection. One night after curfew, when he went over to the dorm chapel side of the building to make his confession, Bunyolo said that he said he saw two students kissing and embracing in front of the chapel doors. He also witnessed one boy carrying another down an adjacent dorm hall shouting, girls, 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 get them while they're hot. After going to confession to Father Orgordi, Bunyolo waited in the chapel for the priest to come out of the confessional in order to express his concern about the abnormal sexual behavior he had witnessed. He advised Father Ordegoidi to alert the superiors of the school and the diocesan bishop to the problems he had witnessed so that the situation could be remedied. After Bagnolo returned to his home in Massachusetts, he wrote Father Ordegoidi about his concerns of possible homosexual activities and violations of chastity at St. Gregory's. In a touch of irony, Bunyolo suggested that Father Ordegoidi remove his community from the school to avoid moral contamination. Sometime later, Bunyolo recalled that he saw a picture of one of the students who exhibited inappropriate same-sex touching at St. Gregory's the weekend of his visit. The young man was now clothed in a cassock, and the caption indicated he had joined the SSJ. Brother Bunyolo thought his concerns brought his concerns to Peter Vare, a canon lawyer for the Diocese of Scranton, and was advised that there was not sufficient evidence to bring the matter to the attention of Bishop Tiflin. Timlin. Brother Bunyolo let the matter drop temporarily. On January 27, 2002, after Roman Catholic faithful broke the story on the SSJ scandal, Bunyolo wrote a detailed letter to RCF President Steve Brady on his experience at St. Gregory's. At the end of, the, of his letter, Bunyolo repeated the advice of St. Anthony Marie Clary on action to be taken when a church institution becomes engulfed in moral turpitude of the kind afflicting St. Gregory's Academy. The only, moral, the only morally certain solution to cure such a problem is the disbanding of the faculty and student body and the dismissal of the chaplains and confessors from their duties there. If the institute is to be reconstituted, this may only be done if there are entirely new faculty, students, and priestly support to do so. This is so because there are always 
relationships which will never be discovered. And if, and if these are present in the new foundation, the conspiracy will be renewed. Problems like this can be avoided in good foundations only if confessors and spiritual directors take recidivism in matters of the the sixth and ninth commandments seriously and are given authority to expel candidates that do not have the grace of chastity and continence without human respect. There were other Tartill incidents that should have indicated to anybody with eyes to see that St. Gregory's Academy had been invaded by an alien moral force in the form of the Society of St. John. And now a reading from the Holy, and now a reading from the Catechism of the Roman Catholic Church. Article 3, Man's Freedom. I'll be reading sections 1730, 1731, 1732, 1733, 1734, 1735, 1736, 1737, 1738, 1739, 1740, 1741, and 1742. 1730. God created man a rational being, conferring on him the dignity of a person who can initiate and control his own actions. God willed that man should be left in the hand of his own counsel so that he might of his own accord seek his creator and freely attain his full and blessed perfection by cleaving to him. Man is rational and therefore like God. He is created with free will and is master of, over his acts. 1. Freedom and Responsibility, 1731. Freedom is the power rooted in reason and will to act or not to act, to do this or that, and so to perform deliberate actions on one's own responsibility. By the free will, one shapes one's own life. Human freedom is a force for growth and maturity and truth and goodness. It attains its perfection when directed towards God, our beatitude. 1732. As long as freedom has not bound itself definite, definitively to its ultimate good, which is God, there is the possibility of choosing between good and evil, and thus of growing in perfection or failing and sinning. This freedom characterizes properly human acts. It is the basis of praise or blame, merit or reproach. 1733. The more one does that, more one does what is good, the freer one becomes. There is no true freedom except in the service of what is good and just. The choice to disobey and do evil is an abuse of freedom and leads to the slavery of sin. 1734. Freedom makes man responsible for his acts to this extent, that they are voluntary. Progress in virtue, knowledge of the good, and ascesis enhance the mastery of the will over its acts. 1735. Imputability and responsibility for an action can be diminished or even nullified by ignorance, inadvertence, duress, fear, habit, inordinate attachments and other psychological or social factors. 1736. 
Every act is directly willed. Every act directly willed is imputable to its author. Thus the Lord asked Eve after the sin in the garden, What is this that you have done? He asked Cain the same question. The prophet Nathan confessed David, questioned David in the same way after he committed adultery with the wife of Uriah and had him murdered. An action can be indirectly voluntary when it results from negligence regarding something one should have known or done. For example, an accident arising from ignorance of traffic laws. 1737, an effect can be tolerated without being willed by its agent. For instance, a mother's exhaustion from tending her sick child. A bad effect is not imputable if it was not willed either as an end or as a means of an action, e.g. a death a person incurs in aiding someone in danger. For a bad effect to be imputable, it must be foreseeable, and the agent must have the possibility of avoiding it, as in the case of manslaughter caused by a drunken driver. 1738. Freedom is exercised in relationships between human beings. Every human person created in the image of God has the natural right to be recognized as a free and responsible being. All owe to each other this duty of respect. The right to the exercise of freedom, especially in moral and religious matters, is an inalienable requirement of the dignity of the human person. This right must be recognized and protected by civil authority within the limits of the common good and public order. Two, human freedom in the economy of salvation. 1739, freedom and sin. Man's freedom is limited and fallible. In fact, man failed. He freely sinned by refusing God's plan of love. He deceived himself and became a slave to sin. This first alienation engendered a multitude of others. From its outset, human history attests the wretchedness and oppression born of the human heart in consequence of the abuse of freedom. 1740. Threats to freedom. The exercise of freedom does not imply a right to say or do everything. It is false to maintain that man, the subject of the this freedom is an individual who is fully self-sufficient and whose finality is the satisfaction of his own interest in the enjoyment of earthly goods. Moreover, the economic, social, political, and cultural conditions that are needed for a just exercise of freedom are too often disregarded or violated. Such situations of blindness and injustice injure the moral life and involve the strong as well as the weak in the temptation to sin against charity by deviating from the moral law man violates his own freedom becomes imprisoned within himself disrupts neighborly fellowship and rebels against divine truth 1741 liberation and salvation by his glorious cross christ has one salvation for all men. He redeemed them from the sin that held them in bondage. For freedom, Christ 
has set us free. In him we have communion with the truth, and that makes us free. The Holy Spirit has been given to us, and as the Apostle teaches, where the Spirit of the Lord is, is there is freedom. We already we glory in the liberty of the children of God. 1742. Freedom and Grace. The grace of Christ is not in the slightest way a rival of our freedom when this freedom accords with the sense of the true and the good that God has put into the human put in the human heart. On the contrary, as Christian experience attests, especially in prayer, the more docile we are to the promptings of grace, the more we grow in inner freedom and competence during trials, such as those we face in the pressure and constraints of the outer world. By, working, by, by the working of grace, the Holy Spirit educates us in spiritual freedom in order to make us free collaborators in his work in the church and in the world. Almighty and merciful God, and your goodness take away from us all that is harmful, so that, made ready both in mind and body, we may freely accomplish your will. And that's all that I have to read from or comment on right now. And so I'll end my podcast here. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. May God bless this podcast, and may the Holy Spirit use it to touch people's hearts. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.